Lord, we ask you to give us ears to hear, hearts to receive um, what you have revealed. Give us uh, eager ears, eager, eager hearts to not only receive and hear, but also to do. I pray that as I preach, um, that while I preach, what, you're, what you've revealed here will become more clear for those who might not at first understand it, and I pray that you will use your word to edify and nourish and, and help us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we have a, a good, thick passage this morning to get through, so I don't want to spend too much time on, I don't want to spend any time in introduction. Let's take that first verse right away. Uh, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Now, they are the majority of, of the Sanhedrin members. The, the Sanhedrin is the supreme ruling body, and in particular, in this case, the supreme court in Israel. The, the them are, or the them who they want to kill are the 12 apostles. They had been preaching Jesus' resurrection in the temple. The chief priests, who are Sadducees and Sanhedrin members, put them in jail. But God, you'll probably remember this if you've been here, God sent his angel who freed them from jail during the night and told them to go back into the temple and keep preaching. And they did that. Uh, the next morning, the Sanhedrin convened for the trial, only to be told the jail is empty. They're, the prisoners aren't there anymore. And while they're trying to figure out what happened and what to do, someone comes in and says, not only are they not in jail, but they're back in the temple, back in the temple courts, and they're preaching again. So they send uh, the temple police, the Sanhedrin sends the temple police, who ask the apostles politely, because the people are, are with the apostles at this point, they ask the apostles politely to come along, and the apostles do. They come to the Sanhedrin for their trial, and when they arrive, and you can read it there for yourself in verse 28, uh, Caiaphas says to them, we told you not to speak in that name anymore, but you filled Jerusalem with, with your preaching. And, and you're determined, he said, to bring that man's blood down on our heads. Now it's here again, and we've made this point before, it's not a new one, but it's, I want to make it again. It's here again that had Peter and the apostles held to the notion, the rather modern notion, that if we want people to listen and to hear about Jesus, we, we've got to make sure, first and foremost, that they, they don't hate us. So, so let's, let's not say anything that sounds like judgment or like, like condemnation or, or they won't be able to hear it. So let's be, let's be winsome and, and let's not be in any way divisive. And then second, we've got to find some kind of, some kind of common ground with them, something we can all agree with and as a way to kind of build a bridge between us. And if they don't, so if they don't hate us, and if they see that there's common ground between us, then they'll have open ears. They'll be able to hear uh, what we're saying. If the apostles believed anything like that, 
Peter might have answered Caiaphas and said, well, well we hear you. We, we see you. Uh, we're, we're listening to your voice. Our preaching uh, has made you feel uncomfortable, and we're sorry. We're sorry for our insensitivity. We're going to do the work. We're going to do better. So we're going we're to change our ways. The man we follow uh, will be sensitive here and not name his name. We know that that upsets you. So the man we follow taught us to be uh, generous toward the poor. Almsgiving is something that you think is important too, Sanhedrin members. So from now on, we are shifting our focus and our new focus will be on generosity, on, on, on giving to the poor, that we're, we're building a bridge here for you, to you, with us. And maybe one day, uh, after some time of doing this, if you're curious, we can talk more about this man that, that, we, that we believe in. But you'll notice, if you're looking down at, down at your text, that Peter didn't say anything remotely like that. Uh, you mean to bring this man's blood down on our heads, says Caiaphas. And then Peter, in effect, says, that's exactly what we're doing. Yes, that's what we're doing. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. We worked through what the, the text of Peter's remark or response last week, and we're not going to do that again. But I want you to notice that, that Peter does not seem to care whether Caiaphas likes him or not. He, he identifies, Peter identifies their sin clearly without mincing any words or pulling any punches. He doesn't worry that, that doing so might leave a negative impression. That, that, that might somehow prevent Caiaphas or the others from receiving the good news that, that Jesus has died and risen again and gives repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, now why doesn't Peter worry about any of these things? Well, because he knows Jesus has taught him. He knows not just because Jesus has taught him, although that's sufficient, but also because he's seen it. He's seen it on Pentecost Day, and he saw it the day that he healed the, the, the lame man in the, in the, in the temple gate. That the, he knows that the conversion of the soul is not and never has been a matter of human persuasion or coaxing. Jesus, he says it here, Jesus gives repentance. And he does that by, by, by dragging, dragging your sins into the light by exposing them to his law and then giving you the, the tenders, tenderness of heart that you wouldn't have had before. He gives you the tenderness of heart to confess and say, yeah, that's mine. That's, that's my sin. I have sinned. And then he gives you the faith to trust in, in the promise that he's given to us in Jesus that you can be forgiven. Jesus has already, by this time, given repentance to thousands of people in Jerusalem. We don't even know how many, but thousands. But Peter also knows that when a person is determined to see himself or herself as, as good, as, as in the right, and Jesus does not 
give that person repentance. When that's the case, the law of God directly applied, no matter how kindly and winsomely you apply it or express it, well, that law is perceived as an existential threat. You, you can expect, if you're the one holding out the law to someone who's violating it, you can expect indignant huffing and condescending dismissals and angry denunciations. Underneath it all is the rage that we see here. The word, you see that word enraged? The, the Greek word behind that word enraged is a word for cutting. It's a word for, for splitting, for sawing in half. Peter's words have, have sliced through the, the, the carefully layered defenses and the exposed Caiaphas and the others, the rest. Exposed the darkness in their hearts. And as you know, the darkness hates the light. And now they want to kill. Here, here's the truth of it. The, the law of God and the gospel of Christ, either people will be cut to the heart and believe, like we saw in Acts chapter 2, either people will be cut to the heart and exposed and then believe because Jesus gives them repentance, or people will be cut to the heart and hate you for it. So there's, there's no use really trying to mince, mince words. You might as well be clear from the very start. Martin Luther, who, as we all know, is very winsome, uh, said this, um, always preach in such a way that if the people listening to you do not come to hate their sin, they'll hate you instead. And Martin Luther was hated in some cases. Now, of course, Martin Luther doesn't mean that you should set out intentionally to be a jerk. That's not what his point is. He does mean that, uh, that you don't hold back on the law or the gospel. Holding back won't help anyone because when Jesus does give repentance, and he does, when he gives repentance, he gives it through the law and the gospel. And when he doesn't, when he doesn't give repentance, we're naturally, you're probably naturally going to think, I must have done something wrong. I must have made some kind of mistake. I've got to rethink my tactics. But so long as you said what God would have you say, what he's revealed in the scriptures for you to say, then the anger is not really directed toward you at all. It's directed toward him. And you're just the closest one to him. So you're going to get the anger that they're really expressing toward, toward Christ. Now, the Sanhedrin's enraged. They've been cut in two, sawn in half, and they're, they're angry. And at this point, they would have passed sentence. They would have said, okay, you guys are sentenced to death and taken them outside and stoned them. But... Verse 34 and 35, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, uh, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. Now, Gamaliel is to this day still honored among Orthodox Jews. He was so uh, it was also very, very much honored in his own day, as, as Luke tells us. They called him Rabon, R-A-B-B-O-N, which means our teacher, rather than rabbi, which means my teacher. 
with that title, Rabon meant is that he was considered a teacher for all the people, not just a, a synagogue full, but everybody in Israel. Gamaliel was the, the grandson of a famous uh, rabbi, Hillel, who was the founder of one of the great Pharisaic schools of thought. And in his own grandson, Gamaliel II became a Rabon after, after Gamaliel. Now we should ask here, why was he, why was he so honored? Because Jesus said, Jesus said that the Pharisees made life hard for the people. The Pharisees, Jesus says, pile heavy burdens on people's backs, but don't lift a finger to help them. But why then would they hold Gamaliel, the, the greatest, one of the greatest Pharisees of the day, in such honor? Why do the people hold him in so much honor? Shouldn't he rather be hated? Well, uh, you might remember if you read through the Gospels that Jesus' diagnosis of the Pharisees as, as spiritual slave drivers shocked a lot of the people who heard him say things like that. Even his disciples were, were surprised. There's an occasion in Matthew chapter 15 after he's had, this, had an exchange with the Pharisees where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, are, are you aware that you have offended the Pharisees? And Jesus, of course, said they were kind of expecting him to back off, but Jesus doesn't back off. He says, well, they're, they're blind guides. Leave them. And his disciples were very surprised by that. The Pharisees were actually loved by the people, in part because historically in the past, the Pharisees had held firmly to God's law when other Jewish leaders had compromised. That's one reason. But mostly because the rabbis, the most people's pastors, who taught them in their villages and prayed for them and preached sermons to them and cared for them when they were sick. They're, they're, those were Pharisees. Pharisaic teachings, as Jesus says, distorted and obscured the scriptures, but I'm, I'm sure that many of them had good intentions. And I, I'm sure that many of them, most of them, loved the people they served. I've known many Episcopalian priests right now in the process of leading their people down the broad road toward destruction, but they, they mean well. And, and they have real affection toward their people and they're kind and compassionate toward them. Visiting them in the, them in the hospital and baptizing their babies and, and burying their dead. So their, their people, the people in their congregations love them. People loved their Pharisee rabbis as much as Christians love uh, false teaching pastors who were very kind. And Gamaliel, he's, he's not just a rabbi, he's our teacher, he's Rabban. Now, now most rabbis had disciples, had, had students sitting under their teaching, learning from them and, and modeling their lives after the life of, of their rabbi. Uh, Gamaliel was no, was no exception. One of Gamaliel's most promising disciples was called Saul, and he was from Tarsus, and we're all familiar with him as the Apostle Paul. But he's not an apostle yet. There's a very good chance that he's at this trial, that he's, in, he's present there with Gamaliel, either as a voting member of the Sanhedrin, because later in Luke, 
I mean, later in Acts, he tells us, Paul says, that he cast his vote against Christians at the council. It might mean the Sanhedrin. Uh, or just as, as Gamaliel's assistant. We know that Saul is present in chapter 7 when, when the Sanhedrin votes to condemn Stephen to death because Saul is the one overseeing the execution, the stoning. So he's, he's most, most likely there for this trial too. And if so, he has now heard the gospel from Peter and the offer of, of forgiveness through Jesus. But in Philippians, we went through Philippians a while back, in Philippians, Paul, remembering this period of time in his life, uh, he said that back then, uh, I believed myself to be blameless under the law, righteous. So Paul at this point, Saul at this point, doesn't think he needs any forgiveness at all. So if he's there, you'd want to categorize him, you'd want to set him among those who are enraged. He's taking the same tack probably as Caiaphas and the, and the Sadducees, angry. And that rage for, for Saul will become a mighty, mighty storm until Jesus speaks and stills the wind and the waves, which is still coming in chapter 9. If he is there, I wonder how Saul feels about, about Gamaliel stepping in here and seeking clemency. The, the case, I think Saul would believe, is, is pretty cut and dry. The, the law is clear. These men are following a blasphemer and they're blaspheming themselves and they've disobeyed the Sanhedrin so they, they clearly deserve death. That's what Saul and the rest would think. But let's see how Gamaliel reasons this out. He's, he's called, Gamaliel has, Gamaliel has called for an executive session. Officers have escorted the apostles outside. Uh, he said, Gamaliel has said, take care what you're about to do with these men. And here in verses 36 and 37, he continues. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Now, we don't know much about Theudas. Josephus mentions a Theudas leading a revolt against Roman rule, but dates that revolt 10 years after this present, present trial. So either Josephus has his dating wrong, or this is another Theudas, which is not impossible because Theudas is a pretty common name, like Bob, the revolt that Bob led you know, how many years ago. It's a very common name. Uh, whatever the case, Theudas was killed by the Romans and his followers scattered. We know a little bit more about Judas, which is another common name, like Bill or Bob, uh, the census that, that Gamaliel references was sometime around 8 AD. Uh, Judas inflamed the people's patriotism and resentment about being forced to be counted by the Romans for taxation purposes. And he said to them, if you participate in this census, uh, you'll, you will have betrayed your true king, Yahweh, and so you can't do that. Uh, you can't pay any taxes to Rome. You can't let Rome count you. And so he led this revolt, and sure enough, the Romans... Put it down. They crucified Judas and his movement died. Maybe you can see Gamaliel's point. 
two popular leaders rose up. The Romans killed both of them, and in both cases, after they were killed, their movements died out. So, in the present case, verse 38, I tell you to keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail, but if it is of God, you'll not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Judas, Theudas, if they'd been from God, Gamaliel's point is, we'd still have Theudasians or Judasians running around and, and pushing their, their different uh, ideas. But we don't have them. And that tells us that God didn't send them. In the present case, Jesus gathered lots of followers, just like both of them did. And, and, and the Romans killed him. They killed Jesus. So let's wait and see what happens. If God's not with this thing, it's going to die out on its own. But if, if God is behind this thing, if God did send this man, opposing his followers is to oppose God. Now, just, just as a little aside, this is fascinating. Gamaliel here, and we can probably assume some other Pharisees, Nicodemus, maybe, if he's still there, Josephus of Arimathea, if he's still there, or Joseph, these Pharisees, including Gamaliel, are willing to consider the possibility that Jesus was sent by God. Now, setting aside Joseph and, and Nicodemus, for Gamaliel or any of the, the other Pharisees to consider that possibility, that's a big change from the way things were in the gospel. It seems like something's happening to the Pharisees, and it's going to continue to happen, as we'll see as we work through Acts. In any case, what do, you, what do you think about Gamaliel's advice? What do you think about his wisdom here? If a thing is from God, it will last, and, and we can't stop it. If something's not from God, then it's going to die, so we don't need to act. Is that, is, that a, is that a principle that we should embrace? Is that something that we as, as Christians should keep? Let's, let's think of some movements that have lasted. Islam has lasted. Buddhism, Hinduism, the Watchtower Society, Mormonism, Judaism apart from Christ, paganism, that's ancient and it's making a comeback. Satanism, black magic, black sorcery, witchcraft, those have been around since the very beginning. If Capellio's principle is correct, uh, these are all potentially from God, and we should not oppose them because we might find ourselves opposing God. Is that true? Of course not. Everything in the New Testament, everything in the Old Testament screams, no, it's not true at all. God tells Israel in Deuteronomy 13, if anyone comes to you with a prophecy that contradicts what I, I've already revealed to you. Put that person to death. He or she is a false prophet. Don't wait around and see if it catches wind. 
In the New Testament, Jesus says, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. Identify false teachers. Point them out. Paul says, if anyone brings a gospel, this is in Galatians chapter 1, if anyone brings a gospel other than the one that we brought to you, let him be cursed. In Romans 1, Paul says the religions of the world are vain attempts to recreate God in the image of mankind. So we we can't just wait and see if something succeeds. When someone comes to you and says, hey, I found this prayer in the Bible, the prayer of of Jabez. And if you just pray the prayer of Jabez, your borders are going to increase. You're going to be prosperous. Or if someone says, you need to claim your blessing or you need to manifest your success. When someone says that this or that political leader is God's Messiah for America or tells you to repent of your privilege or to exercise pronoun hospitality, there's no waiting around to see what happens. Take up the book. Test what you hear by the scriptures and oppose what's false. Some of you have asked me about what was going on down in Asbury and Kentucky. It's uh, whether it's, I don't know if you haven't heard about it. Some people were saying a revival had broken loose down there. It's over now. Um, and people have asked, well, was, do you think it's a real, a real revival? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that the test isn't, has it lasted? The test is whether what happened there is consistent with what you read in, in the scriptures. That's the test. No matter how people feel about it, no matter how the excitement is going on, is it consistent with, with the scriptures? Gamaliel, the teacher of Israel, should know better. He should say, let's open the the law. Let's look at the scriptures, brothers. He doesn't do that. And that's not necessarily new for the Pharisees. The Pharisees never did that, even with Jesus. They never tested Jesus' claims by the scriptures. The best they did was test Jesus by their traditions. And he violated their traditions, so they assumed that he was not from God. But that would be like me as an Anglican uh, saying to my Baptist friends, well, unless you observe Lent and you have the ashes smeared on your forehead for Ash Wednesday, well, then you're you're not even a Christian. That would be using our traditions to tell people whether or not they're following God. They don't do that. The Pharisees did that all the time. Now, Gamaliel's words do carry some truth. In the end... Jesus will destroy every false religion and spirituality, and in the end, only his church will remain. But until then, Jesus commands his church to exercise discernment. Don't wait around and see how things pan out. Test everything by the scriptures. Sometimes people, even Christian people, think, as long as I love God and love my neighbor, the details don't matter so much. And I would just say, if you're one of those people who think that, especially if you're married, test that out with your spouse. And as long as I'm in love, sweetheart, it doesn't matter who I'm in love with, right? Details don't matter. No, I better love her and nobody else but her. God just isn't some amorphous, mystical entity out there you can, you can define as you like. He's a personal God, and he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus, made known to us in the scriptures. And everything else besides that, or claims to be true, that, that conflicts with that, is false. 
Despite all of that, the people, the Sanhedrin, take Gamaliel's advice. Now, it may seem strange because Caiaphas and the rest have gone from murderous rage, wanting to kill them, to compromise. But the reason for that is the Sadducees can't afford to alienate the Pharisees. The people have no love for the Sadducees. The Sadducees have power and they have wealth, but the volatile power of the people belongs to the Pharisees. Caiaphas and the rest would, would, would love to murder the apostles, but they love their power and their wealth more, so they compromise with the Pharisees here. And they called the apostles back in. Now, if you think about this, the last thing the apostles heard before they were shuttled out of the, the room was the whole place erupting in rage. People calling for their death. They've, they've got no idea what's happened in the chamber while they, they've been gone. Are they going to kill us? What's Gamaliel going to say? I, I remember a meeting in the heat of, of the, the sexuality fight a long time ago, like 2005, I think it was, uh, the whole church was at this meeting. All of Good Shepherd was at this meeting at the time, except for me and Anne. Um, a, few, a few members, now long gone from Good Shepherd, didn't like the stance that, that we'd taken, and they called the bishop, and the bishop came down and called a parish meeting, and he ordered Anne and me not to show up. And was, you know, they were going to decide what would be our fate, and it lasted for two hours, and... That, I mean, I, I think that's probably when I started going gray, because it seemed like it lasted a lot longer than two, two hours. I'm sure I aged a long time for that, but it, I thought it was, everything was over. I thought I'd lose my job, and I, clearly I didn't. But that waiting was nothing like this. If the Sanhedrin decides to stone the apostles, there's no you know, 15 years of appeals. They would hear the sentence and immediately be tied up and taken to some dark alley and, and pummeled to death with stones. There'd be no farewell to the church or to their families, no letters home. It's immediate execution. Now, all of them, all of the apostles except for John, will one day be martyred, but it doesn't happen yet. Instead, they, they read there, they beat them. Now, that's not just a punch across the face or a couple of punches across the face. This is a judicial beating, which would mean 39 lashes, 40 minus 1 is how they would phrase it, 39 lashes with a three-tongued leather whip. The apostles are, are stripped to the waist, hands are bound, the first third of the lashings, 13 of them, would be administered to the stomach and to the chest. And then the final 26 would be to the back. Many people died during these kinds of lashings and beatings. If you survive, the, the, the whip cuts deep into your flesh uh, your chest, your, your back is torn to ribbons and, and the scars will never go away. They'll never disappear. That's the point. You're a lawbreaker. That's what, the, that's what the scars are supposed to tell people. You are a lawbreaker. And so when you bathe or when you strip, if you're a man, you strip to the waist to work, everyone sees your shame. Now in our time, 
being a lawbreaker can sometimes carry a little prestige. I've been to prison, and some circles says, I'm tough, don't mess with me. If you're a country singer or something, it's, a, it's kind of a, a badge of honor. Not back then. Theirs is a face-saving honor culture. And so the scars are humiliation and, and shame. The, the only, I don't like bringing this up, but the only roughly equivalent shame marker in our day is probably the, the sign that the, the child abuser has to put up on his door or in his yard to let neighbors know what he's done after he's been convicted. I mean, that's a, that's a very good practice when it's justly applied because it protects children and hopefully brings perpetrators to repentance. But, but imagine being innocent and being forced to put a sign like that on your door or in your, in your yard. That, that's the kind of humiliation that the apostles are going to have to bear. It does seem kind of strange, given Gamaliel's advice. He said, if you, if, you, if you think these men may possibly be from God, why beat them like this? I mean, yes, it's a risk to kill them, but, it, but tearing their skin to shreds doesn't seem much better. It's a little bit incoherent here. The Sanhedrin beat them and then after the beating charged, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now you have to wonder, do Caiaphas and the rest think the apostles are going to shut up? Nothing before this point in time has worked. They've not shut up before. But this is the first time they've bled. It's one thing to be thrown in jail. It's another to feel the whip cut into your skin and to see your body covered with blood. Well, if that was their hope, Caiaphas and his friends are going to be sad. The apostles, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They left rejoicing. Now, that, that sounds inhuman, are they, are they elated? Are they happy to have blood pouring out of their wounds and the searing pain from their whipping? Be careful how you read this. Uh, James, in his epistle, says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face all kinds of trials. And sometimes Christians read stuff like that and they think, Okay, I've just lost my job. My fiancé my fiance just called off our wedding, but I should feel happy. I should feel happy because of Jesus. No. You weep, you mourn when something terrible happens. You come, you come apart if you need to come apart. The apostles are in pain. Maybe they feel that humiliation in some way. But by the rejoicing here, I think what's meant is that underneath that, Deeper than that, alongside that, but transcending that, there's something stronger, something unbending, something wholesome alongside the pain. And if you're a Christian and you've suffered, you know what I mean. He's there. He's there with you in it. 
In this particular case, maybe Jesus' words have come to them. Blessed are you when, when people curse you and revile you and persecute you for my name's sake. Rejoice in that day, for great is your reward in heaven. And, and, and the apostles know, they have seen with their own eyes the Son of God lashed and torn, his body bloody, being led to, to the cross, bearing all the shame for the laws they have broken and that we have broken, you have broken, and me. Whatever, whatever cultural shame the apostles might feel, that's swallowed up by what they've seen and, and know. They, they, they bear the marks of Christ. They put on Jesus' emblem. Their scars for them say, yes, we're lawbreakers, but Jesus has taken our penalty and God has granted us. God has granted us the honor to be covered by the same marks worn by his own royal son. And that is, I hope, how you take every insult and every snide remark, every scoffing dismissal that you receive because of Jesus. It's an honor. God is blessing you when that happens. Great is your reward in heaven. So they keep preaching. Their wounds encourage them to preach more from house to house, as from congregation to congregation, even in the temple itself. So Caiaphas and all the rest have to hear them every day as they make their way to the temple, past Solomon's portico. They have to hear them preaching and teaching. And the word for preaching here, it's the first time it's used in Acts, is the same word we get evangelism from. They're evangelizing. Jesus is the Christ, or Christ is, the Christ is Jesus, they say, with their bruises and their scars. He's your king. You, you had him beaten, they're say, they're t- they tell the people. Uh, you, you had him beaten, just as we've been beaten and crucified. But God raised him from the dead. And by his stripes, by his wounds, if you come to him, you can be healed. We will stop here and pick up here next week. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you for the, the witness of the apostles, for their boldness. Uh, we ask that you would give us the grace to speak as they have clearly, uh, without mincing words, so that you might bring people to repentance. We ask you to help us to be strong and withstand those who will not repent and the anger that might be directed our way. We pray most of all, Lord, that you might use us as your evangelists to our friends, to our neighbors, and to the people in this city. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.